Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? <laughs> a, a book club hosted by me, Gouldie Bailey. And by me. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, Jordi, I'm so sorry. What is it? Dead, dead con nickel? Hello and welcome. I am Dud Gun. I can't do it, my friend. But I'll tell you what I am. I'm the man who's gained a new fear this month. And that's the fear of being cooked alive in a very small space. This it is. I will stop now. I didn't tell Duncan that I was going to do that. Do tell, Duncan. Do tell. Why are you afraid well, first, of being I cooked think it's alive? A normal... Are you afraid you won't taste good? I think it's a very normal fear. I think, you know, it, you should have a sensible level of fear of being cooked alive. And to avoid situations where you being cooked alive might arise. But I wasn't really in active fear. I wasn't really mm. going to bed thinking, oh, what would the experience be like? And uh, now I do. Thanks to this book, The Library at Mount Char, which we have been reading over the last two weeks. That is the book we've been reading, Duncan. Wow. What a... What a strange choice. Duncan, do you read a lot of horror? I do not, Geordie. In fact, horror... I kind of have a very loose relationship with horror in general. Um, I feel like mm. when I was kind of growing up, the horror... Particularly the, the film scene for horror uh, was very much in mm. its sort of saw phase. And uh, that wasn't for sure. me. I did get an appreciation when I sort of entered my more late teens. Uh, I of kind of a love for the general gothic but as a general rule of thumb i am fascinated by horror but unlike how to put it unlike the thrill of like a roller coaster we have kind of that, that build up that tension and you go on the ride and you, your stomach kind of drops out and you kind of have you know you scream you let it all out you get the adrenaline rush but then it stops and it's over and you go home my biggest problem with horror is like i really want to enjoy it and i do enjoy it and i do love the rush and the thrill of it but the problem is it just sits with me more than I think it should. And I can find it, it can genuinely uh -huh. have a negative impact, like going about my day to day life if I get too, too overworked by a particular piece of horror fiction. Now, my relationship is a tad different in that I was a very cowardly child and um, I never watched any horror movies, period. Like, I don't know. Maybe until I was, like, an adult, in fact. Like, I just knew it was going to be scary, and I avoided situations that could scare me. So, so a pretty intense thriller was as far as I could go. And, in fact, the first, like, proper horror media, which I ever experienced, was a book, not a movie. And it was Misery by, um, by Stephen King. And I read the book, and I got to the end and went... Well, that wasn't exactly scary. Like, it was it was dark, but it wasn't scary. And then I turned off the lights, and I went, Oh. Oh, it was scary. Oh, no. That's a great kind of example. I also read a Stephen King book where I had a, kind of a similar journey, but mine was The Shining, where I was like, Oh, I'm more intrigued, mm. really, with where the plot's going. And then, like you said, <laughs> then you turn on the lights, and then it just sits with you. And it's like, oh, I'm not enjoying this bit. <laughs> um, I also... yeah, I, these days, I'm a lot more open to horror, but I only tend to watch it um, with, with girlfriends. Like, it's, to me, it's become a sort of, like, date night movie, which is a weird thing to say. But, it's, but it is a movie that you get to hug in, you know? Like, you go, oh, and you squeeze your partner. That's nice. I'm going to stick to rom-coms uh, for that kind of vibe. I think, though, you make a good... <laughs> Coming up a little element there, uh, thinking about sort of horror movies and something which I think often mm -hmm. gets corrected when you move over to horror literature. One of my biggest issues that I used to have with horror movies were those sort of like last minute scare fake out endings. And it used to frustrate sure. the hell out of me when you do that last minute like, oh, but the killer's still out there. And it's just like, well, that's not actually ending. Or the ending where all the characters you root for, like they all end up dying. And you're like, okay. Thanks, I guess. Whereas I feel like in uh, a lot of books, at least the small pool of horror-centric books that I've read, um, you don't even get that. I, Stephen King's a good example. I think, although his office books go to kind of horrifying places, I think they tend to have, you know, emotionally satisfactory endings. 
Or, sure, so it's not exactly like grim at the end. It's just scary throughout, and then they get away. Yeah, a key example, of, I think, one of my only kind of like horror films I really like is uh, the films in the Scream franchise. Um, I know they're like sure. semi-borderline on the kind of parody angle a little bit, but I always just like them as a slasher film where the killer gets unmasked and they get killed. Like mm-hmm. it has a, it has an end. And mm-hmm. I, it's almost, was it Roald Dahl or C.S. Lewis who kind of, no, Don Bluth, animator, completely okay. different. Yes, said, right. I know what you mean. Children can handle anything as long as you give it a happy ending. And I think that's my philosophy on basically even in adulthood. It's all fine, but you've got to give me that, like, a decent, not even happy, but, like, a, a definitive ending. Duncan, did you, were you kept up at night by this book? No. Nah, me neither. I wouldn't, it's definitely a horror, but uh, it's not scary. It's not. It was, I think, the opening sections of this book, when you don't really know what's going mm. on, and it's a bit disorientating. Uh, carried the most and there's certainly elements here i think it's worth us kind of addressing now there is some material in this book that well it, it deals there are scenes uh not necessarily depicting sort of like sexual assault but depicting the lead up to and people addressing yep. it after the fact uh which is mm-hmm. so disturbing it makes you feel uncomfortable um yeah it's a, it's a deeply grim book you know like um the horror of it is comes in two ways the book is the library at mount char and the horror in it on one half is very straightforwardly you will see disgusting stuff happen people get ripped apart eaten by lions um see the people's guts hanging out and like duncan said um topics around sexual violence are present in the book in alluded to in several scenes and as Duncan said you sort of see the pre and post events surrounding it but the other aspect to it is would you call it cosmic horror Duncan like what's the what, what would you categorize it as that's a very good question it certainly plays around the field of cosmic horror I almost want to say it's more nihilistic horror if that's a, a term... Cosmic horror use. is nihilistic horror. Well... That's not... That's... Then that's what I would have to contribute to it. Uh, this book, there's a kind of major element of these sort of unknown powers above humanity, which is... Sure. Maybe maybe I it... would also say that calling it nihilistic is an absolutely crazy. Like, it is not a nihilistic book in the slightest. It's almost the opposite. Well, that's why I think it almost undermines its own horror. It's the opening section and a good deal of the novel... It plays this sort of nihilistic angle, this nihilistic threat, but then mm-hmm. the ending is a lovely swerve, and it's like actually incredibly. Hopeful. Well, Duncan, that's what you said. You, you're the one who said like, um, like your favorite type of horror story is one that has like basically a happy ending, like the good guys get away. And I'll be honest, I think that's why I really love this book, mm. and I recommend it like to anyone who doesn't feel. So I feel like I'm jumping to the end of the story here. To people who don't feel put off by the sort of topics that we've already mentioned that are contained within, I recommend this book. I found it was odd. It took me places I didn't expect it. And weird is the word. It is weird. But it's also that weirdness, that unsort of canny tone. Like I said, it starts off kind of horror. And for the first or fourth of this novel, I was like, oh, this is a bit eerie. But then this is just this moment, and I'll put it into a bit more later, where things just sort of clicked, and all of a sudden, yeah. I was just having a fun ride. Yeah, you don't, and you're absolutely right. Like, like you said, so, this book fucking rules, okay? Like, I picked it basically out of a hat, said, people say this is a good book, it's horror, it's also fantasy, let's go for it. And fucking hell, this book is amazing. It's the first published work uh, for the author. Really? Yep. Jordi, you're probably wow. going to give their name. Sure thing, man. I literally had the book in front of me. It's Scott Hawkins. Fantastic. I cannot believe that this... That's right, people. I have a book in my hand. <laughs> I do not. This was a Kindle read for me. But I could not believe... When I got to the end and I was like reading up and it's like, you know, he says in his sort of... Um, when he's giving thanks that, you know, this was his first work. I'm like, this is it. This is your first attempt because this is just marvellously <laughs> put together. The, the balancing yeah. of tones in this book between those sort of horror aspects and the, just the fun aspects without really yeah. sacrificing either, even if I do for the horror mm-hmm. that drops off generally towards the end, 
I, I was so impressed. Yeah, if I had to sort of talk about what makes this book really work, is that it perfectly balances horror, exciting action, and comedy. It's a funny book. I would even describe this sort of the comedy aspect to mm-hmm. be absurdist, sort of even Douglas Adams kind of absurdism. I wouldn't go that far. I I I can see what you're trying to get at. Um, I unfortunately I've been in an Ionesco play, which means that um, I don't like people using the word absurdism ever because it doesn't mean the same thing to me as it does to anyone else. But um, but I I know what you're trying to say there, which is that a scene in this book will be a character will say, "Oh well." The sun was created 3,000 years ago as part of a card game or something. This is not a scene that happens in a book. And the other person in the scene who knows absolutely nothing about this world and is just a regular American would say, like, oh, okay. And that's, like, part of the humor. The, the, it's so, it's deadpan. It's, it's a, like, a wonderfully deadpan book. And that same deadpan that makes the comedy work also then translates a little bit over to the horror. Like, horrific things will happen, and then some of the characters will just not respond in a yeah, like, normal human way. Exactly. And it, it that's sort of... Um, to some of the horror in the first part of the book, which you're talking about, especially, Duncan, is the, it comes from the fact that awful, weird, horrible things happen all around this collection of characters, and the narration will just casually mention that it is happening. Or that something has happened. Or draw up a memory of events that have already occurred. And no one will note upon it. The narration won't stop to draw attention to it. It will simply move on. And it will show you that the weirdness is mundane. And the brutality of it is also mundane. Gordy, give me your plot synopsis. Let's take the boundaries off. Let's go in, guys. You've heard it from us. We recommend this book. From now on, this is Book Club. Mm. You've read it or you don't care. You just have the tea and biscuits. Geordie, outline this story for us. I think I can tell it without getting into spoilers. Um, and we can talk about spoilers later down the line because I really, really recommend this book to anyone who has an even, you know, if you can handle a pretty violent thriller, basically, that's the sort of benchmark I'm talking about, then you could really enjoy this book. You have, however, given me a really hard task of telling you what this book is about, Duncan, because it is... Oh, boy. Duncan and I are basically two cowboys staring each other down, like, ready to quick draw at each other, and Duncan just won a quick draw by asking me to explain what happened in this book. Can I uh, so, throw, throw something out there, then? And you can say whether or not you think I'm right. Yeah, sure. I, have, I think I am equal to the challenge of telling you what this book is about. Well, I want to say first, this book is about a dysfunctional family. Uh, I disagree. Okay. (laughs) What's this book about? So, there is a character called Father. Father is not a god. They make that quite clear. But he's something that, if you squint at it, is very much like a god. Father lives in a special library, which contains all knowledge. And he has 12 children who he has raised into adulthood who serve as his librarians who learn the um the different disciplines which he uh teaches which give him all his power 12 disciplines 12 librarians one to each discipline the disciplines range from knowledge of all languages to the realm of animals to the nature of war, to mathematics, to the pathways of death. One who learns all these things has power over all these things and is ruler of the world. I forgot to mention, Father is the ruler of, they say Earth, but really, and not even the universe, like more than just the universe, like all all space and all time. He's king, basically, but like more than a king. Um, and he's ruled the Earth for tens of thousands of years, Oh, God. Oh, man, this book's hard to talk about. Um, And then he's dead. At the start of the book, Father's dead. And the narrator won't tell us why. And his kids are trying to figure out why he's dead. 
but they can't figure it out. And then, and then there's a guy called Steve. Boom. Nailed it. Well, first thing, uh, the book actually opens with father being missing, uh, presumed dead. And it does. It deals with the fact that his 12 children are basically trying to work out, firstly, how could this be? He is the all-powerful. And then, what do we do now? And then Steve, the normal man, gets pulled into this weird, weird world. Steve is a great guy. He's a wonderful... I want to say he's like a... I wanted originally to compare him to Shadow from... Yes, I think that's a really, really appropriate comparison. And actually, I spent this whole book thinking that this book is actually quite a lot like American Gods in a lot of ways. And I'm surprised that you were the first person to mention that. Well, I'm more surprised that, given who wrote American Gods, um, I thought this book made Steve more interesting to me than Shadow. And I think it's because Steve unlike shadow is quite the optimist yeah that's true more upbeat and i just found him more fun to be around yes and that's part of just the the mere tone of this book uh is a lot less it's it's glib this book is glib about huge matters like the cosmos as a whole and part of that means that um you know a character like Steve. Steve is a reformed criminal turned plumber who is trying really hard to be a Buddhist. He hasn't quite got the knack down yet, but he's trying real hard. Uh, I feel... The thing with Steve is that I feel for him because he clearly is, like, a good person and he's been put into these sort of, like, sucky situations completely out of his control. And I noticed the bit early on where basically... One of the 12 children comes to Steve mm. and says, listen, I just want you to do one more criminal job for me um, and I'll give you mm-hmm. this outrageous sum of money. It's like 300k. Um, and he and yeah. Steve has this, like, oh, what do I do? What do I do? And I can't work out quite for me, Geordie. Is this Steve when he says, I'll do it for the money? Like at that point, it's sort of everything that happens afterwards. It's like, well... You transgressed, Steve. You should have stayed on the straight and narrow. Or do you just feel like he, the buttons were pushed so subtly on Steve that whatever happened, he would have ended up getting like on that job. Like he couldn't have actually said no. I think the the money is like the least important thing to Steve's whole thing, and I don't think the story is punishing him in any way. I think it's very sympathetic to Steve throughout. The book is very sympathetic to a lot of characters. It gives empathy all over the place. I'm thinking that statement through and through certain characters. But actually, as I address it, even the characters in this story that are very much presented as the villains, um, such as one of the other children who I actually can't remember his name. I really want to call him Adam, but I don't think that's true. David. You see the connection. Adam is his father. Adam is father. David is his son. Connections. Even these characters who are presented as being some of the most violent, the most uncouth, to be honest, they commit like horrific crimes. There's a nice element linking back to what I just said about Steve, where I got the sense that like he's sort of stuck into this path. You know, people are either subtly mm-hmm. manipulating him or sometimes very unsubtly manipulating him. You feel like, well, yep. they've been kind of brought up to play certain roles so that certain things can happen. Yes, and I would say that the place where you said that this book is about a dysfunctional family, I quite dismissively said, no, it's not. And the reason why I said it is that, for the most part, I don't consider characters like Caroline and David and Michael to be family. They don't consider each other family. But Father is very deliberately named Father. And very much, this is about... Um, people being raised by a deeply, like, cartoonishly abusive man. And the psychic damage that's been done to them over the years, under his tutelage, has formed them into these strange, um, twisted people who do strange, twisted things. So I'm going to push back on you when you spoke about family, because firstly, I think that father-daughter relationship, firstly, is family. And I know you said, well, the other characters, the other children, you know, they're not presented as family because they're firstly not saying that it's any lesser family, but they're adopted children. They clearly are having sex with each other. That's very explicit. So that element isn't there. But they are 
the only people yeah, who understand. I mean, that's pretty concrete. They're the only people that sort of understand each other, have gone through the same trauma, and they speak to each other as family. And I. Th- no, they don't. They call each other friends. They never call each other brother and sister. They never consider each other family. Have I misread this? They're constantly calling each other. We're friends to reassure one another. And what first, another thing you say is they're not even friends. <laughs> they're all pawns. But, um, like, they, 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 that's just how it is. Father is the father to each of them, but they aren't relations to each other. It's like he has 12 separate families. All right. I am backing down, people. And as I think over this okay. book, I can see, because you're right, the focus of this novel isn't in them talking through their experiences no. together. It's about the narrator, yeah. sort of, who's one of the children, um, sort of concluding and sort of processing the traumas that both she's experienced and she's witnessed everyone else experience. But it's not about them interworking and coming together to process it. All right. It certainly is not. And indeed, you could even say that a lot of them aren't even really characters. Oh, I'm going to come out and say, you said there were 12? I forgot there were 12. I could honestly say that there's only five that... I I can't remember, like, more than six. This is not really the fault of the author. He clearly, like, he doesn't care. And that's fine. Like, he just needed it to be a lot of disciplines... So he didn't really care how many disciples there were, I think. It's the, um, it's the dwarfs and the hobbit. It's like, it's a funny list of names, except it's not even that. But it is, they're, they're just a list. They're just check marks. Duncan, can you try and recite the disciplines? Of course. So you have our main character, Charlotte, who is languages. Caroline. Caroline. Oh my God. Our main character, Oh Carol- my God. <laughs> Do you know what? It's because it's normal names. It's the opposite of normal. We're at number one. No. <laughs> See, fantasy <laughs> names are hard, uh, but normal names are even more challenging. Uh, Caroline, languages. Michael, animals. David, war. Margaret, yep. the way of the dead. Sure. Then you have. Then you have. Medicine. Medicine. Whose name I forget. Jennifer. That's right, Jenny. Then we have maps, who I forget. Then we have future maps. Uh, Peter? Alice. Alice. I think. And then we have what? I'm out. Are there, there definitely are more disciplines though. Isn't it? Uh, ghost children, maybe? Is ghost children a thing? Um, or was ghost children the future? I think they used to ghost children to see the future. Was there not geography or space? I feel like that should be a discipline. Um, I don't remember geography being on there. Maybe there weren't 12 disciplines. I'm calling it here, folks. There were only seven. Uh, y'all, I, I can't believe it, but Duncan's basically right. There are, like, seven or eight categories. I, I looked it up, and actually it was really hard to find the answer to this, but the author himself said, oh, I didn't actually come up with 12 categories. Like, one of them, he literally said, oh, I left this one blank for possible sequels. Another one is the armorer, but I don't think that's ever actually mentioned in the text. So Duncan was right, and it was a fool's errand to try and even remember the 12. Well, I told you, so yeah, we're big fans of this book, as very evident. We love this book. Boy, howdy, it's but so the thing good. Is, that's not what it you is remember. good, but... You remember things like when the guy is getting attacked by dogs, and then a lion's coming to save him, and then he takes the lion to a vet and has to hold the vet up at gunpoint to, like... Oh god, that seems so good! I forgot about that scene! Or the scene when he orders, like, he gets locked in this house and there's, like, thousands of rabid mm. dogs outside. And he's like, what do I do? I know, I need to get out of this house. Uh, I'll bring a taxi. And I ask the taxi man to back the taxi up to the door. And it's this scene of him down the phone trying to convince this taxi company to send him a car. Mm. And he's like, yeah, but I need a big taxi. Oh, so Why do you need a big taxi? Um, uh, uh, and he's thinking, well, I've got a line. Taking my kids to the airport. <laughs> Those are the scenes that are amazing. Oh, man. This book is so good. Like, there is there is a scene in this book where you follow a former U.S. Marine turned, like, Homeland Security detective, figure out that magic is real, track down the main character of Steve, who's been arrested, have a very, like, witty conversation with him in the jailhouse, only for a man in a tutu to break in with a spear 
murder like 14 cops and and, and break and break Steve out. Like it's crazy. This book is off the chain. And at the same time, there's an in- terribly intense scene which I alluded to at the race of this um, book club where a father forces one of his young children to get inside a giant uh, ball-shaped barbecue which he locks him inside and then gets his other children to feed the flames and listen to his kid scream in agony as he's cooked alive. And this book somehow balances those tones. (laughs) See, because normally I like to talk in comparisons but I think I've made all the ones I can. Yeah, I will say that I have described this book to my dad as if Elmore Leonard wrote a horror fantasy. You know what this is? This is like this is like if Elmore Leonard, a writer of crime fiction, um he um he teamed up with I guess Stephen King and they wrote to write an episode of Doctor Who. Oh, that is lovely. Especially that, that Doctor Who element, particularly near the end of this um, book. I was like, yeah, this is like an episode yes. of Doctor Who. The, the thing about this book is that it gets, it's constantly really metaphysical. Like, the concepts in it, I keep using the word magic, but Caroline's very insistent that it's not magic. That these are all natural laws which human beings just don't really understand and therefore aren't able to take advantage of. So when they go into like, once a character, like, I don't know, like, walks through a wall or something, they say, well, there's just a completely rational explanation for it. It's just we accessed higher dimensions than, um, than you are capable of perceiving. Literally, there's a bit where they spend a large part of this book inside a 17th dimensional object. You see where I did pull a bit of that Douglas Adams in there? But I really want to kind of clarify that these are the things that made it fun and exciting, and I think though that those more grounded horror elements though still kept the investment up. I think that's what's kind of worked so well throughout this book is that I was intrigued, I was having fun, mm. it was exciting, but I couldn't, I couldn't completely disengage and be like, haha, it is purely farcical. Because then when it takes that time to have a rather serious moment, you feel like okay, I need mm. to take this seriously. And I think what this novel does. Um, with its vibe, with that kind of glib tone as you mentioned, it's never make you feel that one element is undercutting the other. Because how do you write a book, Dordy, with mm. the the taxi conversation? Hi, I need you to book, you know, bring me a taxi so I can get it to the house, so I can avoid these rabid dogs, so I can get my line in the back. But at the same time, have those moments where we basically see this slow build up to a sexual assault scene and it not feel undeserved or like the author's trying to have his cake and eat it. I know. It feels like weird alchemy has been performed. So Geordie, having now finished this book, if there's like one scene that you feel like that's gonna stick with me, either for its absurdist kind of comedy, and I don't like that word, or because of that kind of horror or shock or metaphysical element, like what is that one takeaway, that one scene that just got engraved in your mind reading this book? I think that the scene that really encapsulates this book is when after Erwin and Steve and I can't believe we haven't mentioned Erwin so far he's such a fantastic part of this book I think when they are watching the raid in the house and then they find out that Caroline is in the car with them holding them at gunpoint and they have this conversation where she is trying to explain like the true history of the world and it is so weird and so alien that they literally cannot wrap their minds around it and then the sun turns off. Like that just encapsulates this book in a way that no other scene I think properly can. I found that scene too. It's such an empowering kind of. It was like making them having to kind of check their their worldview. Um, they're kind of falling back on that. No, no, no. I've been told mm. this. I've been told this. And her just go, well, look. And then they go and get guacamole. And it's another kind of beautiful scene. Duncan, I think we have to sort of at this point, we can't we can't keep talking about this book with uh, with our eyes closed. We have to really actually talk about the characters and the stuff that happens in the book, because so much of this book is about unfolding what has actually happened. And I feel like the way this book unfolds, despite it being so weird, is predictable in a certain way. 
And I think that's kind of to its strength, the fact that you can sort of see down the line of where it's going and still be surprised at so many, um, so many junctions. But I think we're going to have to start talking about it. No, you're probably right. This is sort of the point of no return. I think to really talk about this book then, we need to actually dive into the narrator, into uh, Caroline, and address her, because this is her story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Steve is an important part of seeing it, but fundamentally, it's a story about Caroline. And there's so many ways that I feel like you could frame it in a sentence. It's uh, in, in a way, it's uh, sort of a, a coming of age. It's her moving past uh, the parent. Yeah. It's about her coming to terms with her trauma. It's about her gaining perspective. It's a coming of age story for a god. Oh, that's a beautiful way to put it. And I have to agree. Yeah, it's about... Someone gaining all the power in the universe and then learning how to use it. And also gaining then perspective on how others before her have used that power. Uh And I think that's also a really key element. It's not just about her learning how she's going to use the power, but then also then finally being able to understand when she like comes into her power, why her father before her acted the way he did yeah that's right and the fact that steve as a character is a this is acts as a, a tool for us to see through he's not just serving the purpose of an everyman you know he doesn't just in the same way that so many fantasy novels they bring in someone who knows nothing about the world so that they are a fresh pair of eyes that we can see that we can see everything through that his perspective is the perspective of compassion the perspective of forgiveness and that, you know, after seeing all these horrible things happen in the story, Steve, who's basically an, an ordinary guy, is trying really hard to look at things with grace, to forgive people for bad things they do. Not because he's a saint, but because he's just a guy trying to be good. But it also, I think with Steve, it helps as this outsider looking onto Caroline and her trauma. And having to try and say, I didn't go through what you've been through, yeah. but nonetheless... Exactly. Compassion. Steve's just great. He's that He's that element, isn't it? Steve that is That kind of comes together with Caroline. It's the idea that she has all the knowledge and all the power, but then he has to be the, mm-hmm. the all-loving bit. And I want to pay attention to something, to to an aspect of the way the story is written. And that is... And you mentioned, Duncan, that the narrator is Caroline. The narrator, there is not Caroline. She's the main character. And because um, the narrator is the voice that tells us what's going on inside characters' heads. And we get to learn a lot about what goes on in Steve's head. When, the, um, when we're with Steve, the narrator will basically tell us everything that's in his head. And with Caroline, there are times when... We get a a glimpse and we understand her perspective, but she's holding secrets back. And we can tell because, once again, the narrator alludes to stuff but doesn't tell us. We know that Caroline, to a certain extent, is lying to us. And then there's our third perspective character of Erwin. And Erwin gives us nothing. Does he give us nothing? There's one chapter wherein Erwin, like... We learn a ton about his past. Like, we get taken through it step by step, and a lot is still left out. But when Erwin's walking around, it's really focused on dialogue. You hear what he says, and we see the way he interacts with people somewhat. Like, we get a scene where, like, he's a bit frustrated with being recognized in public. But take his conversation with the President of the United States... It is literally just, Erwin said this, Erwin did that. The other people in the room react in this way. But you don't get shit about Erwin. See, now you've called me out earlier about the narrator not being uh, Caroline. I still read this book as if it was. Because it almost, to me, and this could be completely wrong, this is completely just my sort of takeaway, but I always felt like this was like, if uh, uh, Caroline, at the end of the novel, wanted to tell her story, this is the way she would tell it. Because she wants you to be in Steve's head. She wants you to feel with the person who brings the empathy, 
Whereas Erwin is just there because we need to see those scenes. Am I grasping at straws there? Am I seeing something that doesn't exist? Uh, I would disagree, but for one chapter and one, two pages in that. And that is when it's right. It's one of the final chapters in the book. And it's when they're in the library, just her and Steve. And Steve has been there for a month. And I think that chapter, the narrator is very much in her voice. Because it reports on what Steve has said. No, no, it reports on what Steve has done from Caroline's perspective. And then in brackets, it's told us, um, it's told us Steve's perspective on it. I'm going to grab my book and recite it in fact. I always feel this can be such a interesting comparison where, again, key example, read the same text, very different takeaways. And I don't know if, if I made this decision very much early and that informed the long read or whether or not this decision was taken at the end and I've sort of applied this in hindsight. This wasn't surprising. The list of things Steve found objectionable was long and growing. It included the library itself. How can a furniture just hang up a ceiling like that? It's creepy. The jade floor... Jade isn't supposed to glow. The apothecary. What the hell is that thing? I'm out of here. The armory. David's trophies made him throw up. The Palapi language. It sounds like cats fighting. Her robes. Did you borrow those from death? She hadn't. And of course, Caroline herself. Just ask and he'd tell you all about it. The all in particular is very, um, is very much her perspective. That she's frustrated and getting tired of him and it's complaining that being said i kind of think um that it's just because it's third person limited like i think if you go back to a steve chapter the narration would be in steve's voice because it just picks the chapter that it's about and it follows their voice so i can't disagree with you but that still hasn't kind of shaken my belief that i read pretty much this entire thing in a consistent narrator's voice uh whether or not i was meant to or not your experience may vary Going back then to Caroline, Jordi, what do you make of her being, her codex being languages and this making her sort of yeah. the successor? Mm, that was, that was, I was really interested by that. I kept thinking, why choose to make our perspective character um, a linguist? Because we've read another book where the main character was a linguist and it was really important to the themes of the story. That being Strange the Dreamer, where language and the beauty of language and communication was the main theme of the story. The idea that the only person who could solve a conflict was someone who could communicate with between two sides or allow two sides to communicate. Why in this story is language so important? My perspective on this was that it's important... Um, for two reasons. Number one, it's because it's language is understanding. And that's how it's, I feel it was framed in this story. It was the understanding yep. uh, for Caroline to then be the one speaking to the Americans. And to then be able to then, by learning their language, she learned their culture. And could then actually connect with and then empathise with other people. It's also shown as understanding mm. because, quite obvious very explicit that it's the knowledge of all of these codexes yes, that gives you that, power thus the one that can yes that was my perspective on it you know um uh scientifica est something <laughs> knowledge is power yeah you got it uh scientia potentia est i think that's it beautifully spoken i can't speak for validity of that um i apologize for all our latin speakers if geordie got that wrong <laughs> or Better got it right, but completely botched the delivery. Um, my only Latin I knew kind of growing up was a video game. Uh, it's a Rockstar game, which had a Latin title in the UK. Do you know this? What? No. The guys who make GTA? Yeah, the guys who made GTA. But this game was set in a school. Um, and in the US, okay. it was called Bully. Ah. But in the UK, it was called um, Canis Canem Edit. Dog Eat Dog. Really? Yeah. I've never heard anyone call it anything other than bully. I know, neither have I, but I have my PS2 copy to hand. And it says, Kinesi Kinemi Deet on the cover. 
Does it also say bully on the cover, like, in big letters above that? It doesn't. And this is what confused me. Because if it was, like, a tagline, I'd understand. But my PS2 copy yeah. just says, can I skin What MED? is going on? That being said, um, I have seen, like, copies of Jaws, where it doesn't say Jaws on the cover. It just says, we're going to need a bigger boat. So maybe it's that. Uh, I would love it if someone genuinely went into that movie thinking that was the title. Or got, got the completely the vibe of the film wrong based on that title. Speaking of Jaws, do you think this book could ever be adapted to film? Could it? Could it be attempted? Um, I mean, you could try, but I don't think you would want to. You could certainly try. Um, and I think that's uh, for a few reasons. One is the quite common issue you would see when a lot of people try to bring Lovecraft to film. And that some visuals... It's not scary. It's not scary. I think this one... Because Cthulhu isn't scary. Please see our episode on tier... monster tier list for evidence of this. <laughs> but uh, this one does have a lot of very graphic violence. And I can see how that could definitely lead into uh, kind of working for horror. But ultimately, I think the ending of this... Oh, I'll be honest with you, Jordi. Too big. I think if you were to do the ending of this, do you know how I, I picture it in my head? Like, like an old TV Stephen King adaption, like with like Langoliers. <laughs> yes, I know exactly what you mean. Like the Langoliers of like the Black Pyramid existing and like flying mm. through space. Funnily enough, the end of the book, which which is actually like really um really tones down, considering the fact that it takes place inside a seventeenth dimensional object is literally just about Steve killing himself over and over and over and being brought back to life. And that reminded me more of, like, a two-person play. And I sort of imagined in my head this this play, which would be about, like, these two people are arguing, but you can't really figure out what they're arguing about. And it's only as you carry on through the play that you gain the context clues to figure out that, that some, one of them has died and then come, then come back. And it's only, like, as the play wraps up that we really start to understand that, like, one of them, like, refuses uh, refuses to let the other one die and has to make peace with their, their, their being gone. Oh, Geordie, you have sold that to me, so I, I can I can see the stage, the lights of the stage. And, you know, I would want it to be one of those, like, minimalist sets. Um, yeah, absolutely. And you would want it, like, uh, the way I, I would be directing this is that They'd be having this argument and it would it would be this, you know, it's the scene of Steve and Caroline. So you have no idea, mm-hmm. out of context, just the end of this book, uh, what's mm. going on. And then it would always end with Steve, like, dying. And then you do the lights and then very quickly lights come back on and it's like it's just the next day. And they're continuing sort of the discussion slash argument. That would be the intermission, if you ask me. Oh, no, I would do it sort of periodically. I would do it like maybe three times. Mm. lights go down me i think the end of the story has to be though like it is about it going dark and letting steve go you know like just like this book is what's happy this book had a happy ending yeah it did steve is dead though oh see okay context for those that have not read the book steve becomes a ray of sunshine quite literally he gets frozen in a moment where he's connected to the interdimensional space of pure joy and this lights him up so much so he becomes the new sun and Caroline puts him up in the sky. But this is meant to be our uh, Steve like lives on forever in that moment of joy. But yeah, that's true. Actually, he's not actually dead, but he no longer exists in a real temporal way. If you follow father's journey that Caroline has just stepped into, father had a person who he connected to pure joy and put up in the sky. Yes. And when Father's reign ended, what happened to them? Um, nothing. They kept going. Caroline, um, stopped her being the son. And then what happened? And then she stabbed her. Yes, but after she killed her, she brings back Father to life. Or brings Father back yes. to life. And Father okay. brings back the old son to life. And says, I'm off to create my own universe now. Uh, with my yeah. best mate, the tiger. And they go away. And I very much interpret this as that's what the end of Caroline's story would be. Uh, Michael represents who comes back at the end of this story, who was uh, sort of Lord of the Animals, just as Father's Lord of the Animals, the tiger, 
came back to him mm. and the sun came down. And I've, I read this as very like, this is like a cycle, you know, Caroline's the next one, oh, but okay. ultimately Caroline will get bored. Caroline won't solve the great mysteries and Caroline will have a replacement and Caroline won't be such an ass to her replacement as father was to her. And the cycle will continue. That's, that's sort of how I saw it. That's interesting, Duncan. I hadn't really considered like beyond what, where Caroline would go you know, 60,000 years after this book. I very rarely think about what happens 60,000 years after a book I read. I think that'd be a fun but, game to play. Yeah, I guess that's something to be said to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, most... <laughs> I think most books would probably end the same way. Like you say, what happened 60,000 years after after uh, the seagull? You know, well, I guess the human race is probably gone. Yeah, but then you read a book yeah. series like Dune, and you go, "What happens uh, sixty thousand years after uh, Children of Dune?" And it's like, "Well, the sequel, obviously." And you pick up Emperor of Dune. So yep, yeah, here we go. Oh boy, I'll finish Children of Dune at some point. Oh. Duncan, I can't. I'm not strong enough. Children of Dune. Tangent. We're going on now. Um, no, no, this isn't a tangent because I was just, I was going to bring up Dune. You were going to bring up Dune. I was going to bring up Dune. Because of a human character stepping into godhood. Mm, I was going to be more from the fact that Caroline can see the future. Or rather, she can manifest the future. Or rather, she can navigate the flow of causality such to put things in the right place at the right time. And we find out that a bunch of inconsequential events that happen in the course of this story of these super duper elaborate you know rock hitting a rock hitting a rock to roll a stone like moments set in set in their path by caroline because she can see all the actions and reactions like the kwisatz haderach i enjoyed this element and i think it worked with the comedy to not feel yes. too much like a uh like i wouldn't i wasn't getting annoyed it didn't undermine the plot because mm. it had that kind of comedy aspect to this story, I was ready to kind of chalk it It was sort of Bill and Ted-ish. Uh, expand on that. You know what I mean? Well, you know, there's jokes in Bill and Ted, like, they need to get the keys to unlock a door, and they say, well, why don't we just come back in time later and just and just give ourselves the key? And he goes, uh, well, where would you put the keys? Uh, right here, he says, and then immediately picks up the keys from, like, the, the table next to him. And, like, it's that sort of joke. Like, Erwin needs bullets in his gun to kill David. So she has engineered it so that at an earlier point in the book, um, Steve would accidentally drop a magazine just in the place where Erwin would be when he needed more bullets, and he would go bend down and pick it up. And then Steve goes, hey, that was my magazine. That is a good moment. I do feel like that's sort of the only moment that quite felt like that did you ever feel that Caroline was out of control that she ever was truly surprised or did you feel like in hindsight oh no every second after that exact moment yes that is the last moment of the entire book where she's in control her killing David is as she says 15 years of planning and then after that she has nothing left so is that to say every other moment I'm trying to think of what happens on the run up to that that like then okay so you plan for that so i suppose a big fact is that that she knows her siblings uh, not her siblings as you've established her other mm-hmm. adopted children or father so well that they always do exactly what she thinks they're going to do no she can see the future how can she see the future because alice can see the future and she's read alice's codex yes have i misunderstood this so she. I want to check if her name her name is actually Alice because I might actually just be thinking of Twilight. So she's intentionally sincere because I understood this as at the end of the story, Father gives her the power to manipulate the past. Yes. So I thought it was more of that kind of setup. That it's no, nope. It just says no people. No, because Cat. That's why I was interpreting this like it was her at the end of the story. She basically becomes this sort of time lord thing. Okay, so you're saying that. Caroline at the end of a story when she's master of the cosmos rewrote her past in order to manipulate the events that would allow her to get into the position to rewrite the past yes now you say it like that there does seem to be an inconsistency there because she wouldn't have been able to do that 
and the void thing is, I feel like this book would actually care about time paradoxes. Like, it treads in a lot of weird spaces. I mentioned the 17th, 17th dimension, I think. And the fact that there's an eldritch horror called Baba Oshia, I think. There is indeed. Chill dude. Kinda. You don't really know a lot. Apparently, <laughs> I think there is a line in this book where, like, someone starts sprouting tentacles. And Steve goes, oh my god. And he says, don't worry, it's just Baba Oshia. He's a real pushover. <laughs> I think this book has such a like wider universe. It really nicely, subtly hints at. I really mm, appreciated I the fact that the fact that uh, as we go for this book, like, see, so like, what's that? And they kind of brush it off, and yeah, that works for both the horror and the comedy. Mm. But then at the end of the book, not everything does get quite explained. There are still these open questions. You know, who came before father? Who came before them? Who are all these different yeah. factors? There, she talks about that his father's dukes or generals and all these wider mechanisms, but we don't really see that. It doesn't take time to focus on that end of the story. It's very much Caroline, Steve, and a bit of Erwin. And that's really all it needs. We haven't talked about Erwin. Let's talk about Erwin. Erwin was the moment I decided I loved this book. It's about 90 mm. pages in, He's and great. it was the bit where it went from, mm, this is a bit weird, this is a bit scary, I'm not sure I can do this whole novel. And after Erwin came in, yep. despite the set, I said that Steve is like our normal guy, his opening chapters are still a little yeah. bit like, oh, that's quite horrific. Uh, but then Erwin, you're like, I don't know. I felt safe. Erwin's the first character who seemed yeah. to... He's inflappable. Yeah. And that's the thing. He's, he's, so Erwin is this, um, the most veteran vet to ever vet. visit a vet. <laughs> he is indeed. And he's, um, like, he's literally like stone cold, completely PTSD'd up to the gills, no feelings left in his heart. Tough. And fucking hell is he cool. He made me feel more secure having his chapters. Like, after he had his run-in with David and was completely unfazed, mm-hmm. I just kind of went, oh yeah, yep. I- I'll just decide to not be fazed by this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and then honestly a lot of the violence so, just became like i wouldn't say like funny but it became it did it became more cartoonish certain scenes that were mm. before i was like oh my god this is horrific like what's happening to these people it's just like uh that's just david cutting through the masses it's um it's this strange anchor point into this whole other world of the book because while steve is out of his depth and Owen is out of his depth he knows how much danger is present like he understands danger in a real way so when he's taking action to sort of confront david and the li- other librarians the, the palpati um you're like this feels more tangible and i don't think he can do anything about it but i feel like he can survive to the end of the story and he has so many fucking good moments like there's a scene where he visits the Oval Office and, like, gets a trash can to spit chewing tobacco into. He... I fell in love with him, and I don't necessarily... I'm sorry. I do not agree uh, with this sort of approach to teaching or to helping kids or sort of discipline. <laughs> but the bit where the, he becomes a teacher for a bit in his backstory, mm-hmm. and he, like, teaches the kid at the back of the class to basically how to fight, and then sends mm. him off to beat up the bullies... It's like, it, I like that moment because it showed that he does care and he is like the good person. And I'm not going to lie, this part of the story, that was I a, wasn't sure anyone else was a good that, person, but he had his weird way of showing it. I That was a weird moment for me. And this is where you said like, people can have different readings of the book. I straight up just had the wrong reading there. And I literally didn't realize that I understood this, that I'd gotten it wrong until the very end of the book. That literally the very end, the final chapter of the entire book. Um, because you're saying your, your description of that chapter is correct. That is the way we're supposed to read it. But the way I read it was that Erwin was so locked into a pattern of violence, having just come back from the wars, that, um, he couldn't understand civilian life anymore. And as such, when he's dealing with this bullied kid in the back of the class, he teaches him to fight. And then this kid does get into a fight and he gets kicked out of school and and he gets moved to a different rougher school and he's like i don't really care about books anymore but people think i'm cool because i know martial arts and erwin cries and it's like the first time he's cried in years 
Um, I took that to mean, oh, Owen has realized that the pattern of violence that he lives in is not something that he can teach to others and then expect them to live productive lives. And he has to change his own life if he's to, you know, move on from his own life of violence. But that was wrong. That is incorrect. The end of the book is actually that kid is now super successful and still loves Owen and will look after him till the end of his days. I would honestly wish to have had that reading because I think it would make the next couple of scenes all the funnier. If you thought the message was he'd like gotten over his violence. Is there a pro-violence message in here? The book is deeply ambivalent on the topic of is violence cool or not? Do you think that's part of that kind of uh, nihilistic edge? It's just kind of like it doesn't matter on the, on the scale that like particularly to Caroline's character and hence why I interpreted a lot of her being the narrator because on the scale that she's trying to operate it just doesn't matter no I I, you know what I really I'm doubling down I don't think the narrator is Caroline's perspective because think about how the narrator talks about the death of um of Dresden the lion like the book is not cold and dispassionate about that it's a stirring moment. You know, it's like a heroic death because it's Steve's chapter and Steve's perspective on, on Dresden. See, I don't want to concede, but I also want to be the person that admits when that's actually a really good point. So I'm going to have to maybe concede and say, yeah, actually, that of all the moments you said is the bit where I'm like, I can't twist that in my head to be Caroline looking back. I don't think Caroline looking back would ever see that line as anything more than the tool to kind of get where yeah. you need to and go. Yeah, and that chapter, that chapter is really, those couple of chapters at least, is the moment where Steve, like you talked about how Irwin like really makes this a great book. And I agree, I think that is literally the, the chapter where it did turn around for me and turn into a really phenomenal book. The thing that pushed it even further from being beyond phenomenal to being absolutely fantastic was the chapter of Steve and the Lions. That there's a chapter where Steve has to investigate the library and he is sent with two lions to act as his bodyguards. And it already begins in an absolutely awesome way. You're like intelligent talking lions who have their own like lion culture, which we learn a surprisingly large amount about. And then he like starts to care for and rescue these lions. Um, and then one of the lions like sacrifices its own life because Steve saved his daughter's life and so he lets Steve get away and then he starts protecting the lion as though it's his cat like his pet cat and takes her to the vet and has the best scene in the entire novel where he holds vets at gunpoint with an empty gun to make sure they fix his cat the characterization on that lion Jordy was Oh, chef's kiss. It's so good. It's really fantastic. For an animal that doesn't actually get uh, actual speaking lines of its own, we do get some characters say, oh, she said this. We get a wonderful insight into this creature yeah. and how it never stops being, never stops being sort of, yeah. I don't even say a line. And that's, but that's right, because there's a chapter in this book which is literally from Dresden's perspective. And then, you know, like, and suddenly we're in the world of lions and th- all of our perspective is about how lions see the world. And I'm not talking in the way that people write animals and they have like weird descriptions for things because they're animals and they don't descri- understand human inventions. I'm talking about like his own perspective on honor and like what it means to be a pack hunter and the grand ancestral history of lions. See, Geordie, you've now brought up the one thing that has finally killed my Caroline's the narrator idea, like, truly. And it is actually there, because that chapter is narrated by Dresden, obviously. And now I'm I'm falling into place. <sighs> you know what? Some people say that book clubs are about sharing our love of books, and some say it's a chance to, um, it's a chance to learn about the, you know, about the world of, of reading and really give yourselves motivated to read more. But I said in episode one, Duncan, this podcast is about winning. Do you feel like you've won today? Fuck yes. You see, Geordie, truth is, though, I'm the world winner. <gasps> because I got to learn more. Oh, was, was that it? Yeah, that's all I've got. Ah, uh, man, what shit, a fucking it? loser. <laughs> <laughs> one other thing I want to bring up that I really appreciated in the library at Mount Char, and that is the end of this book, 
is the last quarter. And you might think, well, duh. What I mean is, and this is something that I had an issue in quite a few sort of fantasy novels I've read recently, is that the climax and, like, the last page are not very far apart. <laughs> the sort of action climax of this story, where our main character beats David yep. um, and sort of sends him to the library, happens about three quarters away through the book. Mm. And we get a long bit of this story just about character development and addressing the themes mm-hmm. and unveiling the mysteries without any real sort of action or tension. You're right. And I really enjoyed that kind of long, just like, cool, now let's just spend time uh, making this satisfactory, mm. giving you what you want yeah. now that you've gone through the action adventure. It's a lot like, and this is a weird thing to bring up, it's a lot like how in Lord of the Rings, both um, the Two Towers and Return of the King, and Return of the King... The ring is destroyed at, like, the halfway points. And after that, it's all the wrap-up of going home and 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 the scouring of the Shire and getting and moving past the loss and then sailing into the West. And I think it's something that I haven't seen a lot over the uh, books we've read during Book Club. Either they've been parts of ongoing series or they've just, like, had their sort of action climax and then it's like, and uh, they lived after after or not who cares i think giving it this look it almost sorry to link it back to the very beginning it does the thing that i it addresses the key point that i dislike in so much horror and that's a satisfactory ending and this gave one the most yeah. satisfactory endings i have read yeah it's fantastic possibly all year because it took its time and it knew what was valued this book wasn't about uh mm. caroline beating david uh, who's sort mm. of the you know the physical threat? It was about her learning her lessons and coming into her character growth and growing mm. up and taking on the mantle of godhood, and that's where it spent its time. Well done. So well done. Oh man, this book fucking rules. I really can't stress that enough, and I feel like I haven't even done it justice, even though I've said how great it is over and over and over in this book. This, more than anything, has made me feel so woefully unqualified to uh, analyse literary text. But that's why we're not uh, literary analysts. We're just two blokes uh, hosting a book club. So I'm going to throw it out to all our other members of the book club. If you are a literary analyst or just someone who has a far better worded opinion, uh, why don't you write in and tell us? Uh, you can do that at isthisjustfantasypodcast at gmail.com. And give us your mm. breakdown of the library at Mount Char. There's so much to dive into. So many points. I think we're going to finish wrapping up this already. Walk away and go, oh, that thing. We literally just didn't address this major theme. But that's the of it sometimes. Ask me what we're doing next week. Make me. I will. Oh, okay. Uh, so, Duncan, what are we reading next week in our final part of our Halloween book club? I'm so happy you made the decision to do that. Well, Geordie, I'll tell you. Duncan, I have a great joke coming up. You're going to love it. It's a story, people. And for those who listen to our bonus episode on, guess, the first line of the book, or whatever name we came up with, Geordie said that he'd made a guess at what I was going to select, and he'd written it down. Boy, howdy. Geordie? I sure did. You have it with you? I, I've, nev- I, I've never been more certain in my life about this. Uh, yes, I, I have it with me. I'm going to say... Upon my honour as a... On my scout's honour. I'm not a scout. Sorry, I won't take that name in vain. I will not... I have not changed this. This is truly my pick. I'll best to do this. Do you you want to reveal your guess first? And then I'll tell you. Sure thing, Duncan. The next book we are going to read on this podcast is... Berserk. Geordie, Geordie, Geordie. The series that has what I named one of the best villains in fantasy literature... For our spooktacular month? Mm-hmm. You're right, mate. Absolutely. I knew it! I knew it! I'm so excited! I'm... I... I I'm happy for your God, joy. I'm... I'm so excited! I really can't stress this enough. I was the one who put, like, Berserk on my... It's literally, like, second on my list of books that we have to read for book club. And Duncan put it out there, which means I get to pick when we read the next part of Berserk. Because... Duncan, what is Berserk? Berserk, ladies and gentlemen, is a long-running manga series. It Very has long running. 
many, many a chapter. So when I say Berserk, I'm not suggesting we read all of Berserk. In fact, no. I'm only putting out there the first two story arcs. Yes. So for those interested, um, you can buy the uh, paperback volumes. I believe it goes up to volume 14. Collects the first okay. arc called Black Swordman. And the second arc, known as the Golden Age arc. Uh, for those picking up the big, thick, um, hardback omnibuses. Geordie, I believe it's the first Which four. Which you should. Um, I'll find out. Five. Deluxe Edition 5. Wonderful. For those who've been following uh, and being part of our book club for a while now, you'll probably notice that I've mentioned that I've been reading this so slowly over the year. But we finally reached the point now where I've finished this bit of the plot. I'm so excited to talk about this. Uh, Geordie, mm. I imagine this will be maybe less of the, like, the deepest ever dive into Berserk and more of just a recounting of our own experiences with it. What experiences I've had. I mean, well, we shall see. We shall see how our conversation ends up. I have read Berserk five times. I first read it when I was 16 years old. That was a third of my life ago. This has been with me a long time. I will be a first-timer, and I invite all the first-timers on Berserk to come along. If you've never read it before, uh, I'm, I can tell you now, I think you should go and read it. Although it's literally the best fantasy series of all time. An important content warning over Berserk. Uh, Casual Google search will give you the details. Yeah. But that will be in two weeks time. Looking forward to seeing you all there. I'm so excited. I can't wait. This is going to be amazing. Your joy brings me joy. I've been Duncan Nickel. Ah, the children of the night. What beautiful podcasts they make. And that was Geordie Bailey. Good night, everyone. Good night.